We meet today in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 to verse 2. The book of Ephesians talks about the church as a body, and particularly this first chapter. It gives us the introduction in the first two verses. Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers and the surrounding churches to give them an in-depth teaching about how to mature and maintain the unity of the church. He wanted to put this information in written form because he was in prison for preaching the gospel and could not visit those churches. Paul apparently had received reports that the Ephesian church had held up well against false teachers. However, Perhaps the love, care, and the unity Paul called for were lacking. Thus, this letter speaks much of love and unity and the outworking of these in relationships in the home and in the church. Paul knew that such teaching was needed not only in Ephesus but also in every church, again pointing to the probable secular nature of this letter. Indeed, Paul's words applied in Ephesus and in all of the Asian churches. They do apply to our churches today. They apply to you and me today. So Ephesians begins with the doctrinal section concerning the heavenly calling of the church, the vocalization, which is the introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 1 to verse 2. Now this is the most brief of all introductions to Paul's epistles. It's brief because very frankly this epistle was sent to the church in Ephesus but it was also intended to be for all the churches. Ephesians was apparently the epistle that Paul referred to when he said to the Colossians to read the epistle to the Laodiceans. In other words, this was a secular letter for the churches in that day. He is not writing here to the local church as much as he is to the church in general. That is the invisible body of believers. Now let's look at the details of these two verses, very few words but very important. He begins by saying, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. Actually, Dr. McGee suggested that this should be changed to Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. The reason is that the word Christ is his title. That's who he is. You are the Christ, son of the living God, Matthew 16, verse 16. Jesus was his human name. Paul could say that we no longer know him after the flesh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. So Paul didn't know Jesus as the Jesus of the three years ministry, but rather as the glorified Christ he met on the Damascus road. See, Paul always emphasized the name of Christ first, Christ Jesus. Actually, 
you will find that that is the pattern that he follows in this whole epistle to mention Christ first. So what does he say? He states that he is an apostle. Now, immediately the question comes, what is an apostle? Now, it is the highest office the church has ever had, the apostle. No one in the church today is an apostle in the strictest sense of the word for the simple reason that no one can meet the requirements of an apostle as we study the word of God, seeing some of the requirements. Acts 1 verse 21 to verse 22, in senior words, the characteristics of an apostle, it says, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Here are the requirements as stated in the Acts account and elsewhere in Scripture. We observe that first and foremost, the apostles received their commission directly from the living lips of Jesus. Paul made that claim for himself. He wrote, Paul an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Galatians 1 verse 1. So this is the reason that I believe Paul took the place of Judas. The disciples had selected Matthias, but I don't find it anywhere that Jesus made use of him as an apostle. Apparently all the apostles received their commission directly from the Lord Jesus. That is a major requirement. Secondly, the apostles saw the Savior after his resurrection. And of course, Paul could meet that requirement because the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. Thirdly, the apostles exercised a special inspiration. They expounded and wrote the scriptures. Certainly, Paul measures up to that more than any other apostle. For now, we see in the New Testament, the whole chunk of the New Testament is actually ascribed to Paul. Fourthly, the apostles excised supreme authority. Second Corinthians 10 verse 8 says, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Fifthly, the badge of the apostles' authority was the power that they had to work miracles. That is in Mark chapter 6, 13, Luke 9, verse 1 and 2, Acts 2, verse 43. Now, that was the badge of an apostle. Today, the badge of true servants of God is not necessarily the ability to work miracles, but having the right doctrine. 2 John 9 and 10 says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your houses, nor greet him. And lastly, but not the least, 
the apostles had wonderful characteristics. This one, they were given a universal commission to found churches. We read 2 Corinthians 11 verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Now, Paul expressly met these six requirements for apostleship in the true, stricter sense. Well, in general, some people may say we are apostles because we have been sent to preach the good news. Now, let's go back to the details of verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. My friend, Paul rested his apostleship upon the will of God rather than any personal ambition or will of man or request of a church. He wrote to the Galatians, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Galatians 1 verse 15 and 16. Paul also said to Timothy, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. First Timothy 1 verse 12 and 13. Paul made constant references to the will of God as the foundation of his apostleship. Actually, if you can check 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 1, Colossians 1 verse 1, 2 Timothy 1 verse 1, you would find that Paul vehemently denies that his apostleship is due to human agency. He was not commissioned an apostle by any group nor by any mortal individual, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Unlike the other apostles, Paul received his call directly from the resurrected, glorified, and exalted Jesus. This special reference to the Lord's resurrection implicitly confirms Paul's appointment as an apostle. He speaks of this in all these references that we have made. And this verse continues. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Now the word for saint is hagios. Which means holy or separated. The primary intent of the word is set aside for the sole use of God, that which belongs to God. The pots and the pans in the tabernacle were called holy vessels. Why was it because they were specifically holy and very fine, clean and nice? No, my friend. I think that they were all beaten up and battered after that long wilderness journey. They were holy because they were for the use of God. And a saint, my friend, is one who has trusted Christ and is set aside for the sole use of God. There are only two kinds of people today in the world, the saints and the ains. If you are a saint, then you are not an ain't. If you ain't an ain't, then you are a saint. Now, there are some saints who are not being used of God. 
Now that is their fault. They are set aside for the use of God and for his divine service. Saints should act saintly. It's true, my friend. But they are not saints because of the way that they act. No, they are saints because of their position in Christ. They belong to him to be used of him. Where are these saints? They are in Ephesus. We have already referred to that. You can put in the name of your town here. For me, it would be Harare. For the saints in Harare. Could be saints in Abuja. Could be saints in Nairobi. Could be saints in Johannesburg. It could be saints in Beira. Wherever you may be, he addresses you. And it is wonderful to see that the word of God recognizes saints in their geographical location. Verse 2 says, And faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. Now these are believers. The believers and the saints are the same, you see. A saint should be saintly and a believer should be faithful. A believer is one who has trusted Christ and a saint is the same one. The term saint is the Godward aspect of the Christian life. The term believer is the manward aspect of the Christian. They are not just faithful, but they are faithful in Christ. Now, this is the most wonderful thing of all. This epistle is going to amplify that so much that I will be dwelling on that in more detail later on. To me, the most important word in the New Testament is that little preposition in I-N. Theologians have come up with some lules trying to tell us what it means to be saved. How do you define your salvation? There are words like redemption, atonement, justification, reconciliation, propitiation, and the vicarious substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. All these words are good. They are wonderful. But each one of them merely gives us one aspect of our salvation. What does it really mean to be saved? Well, it means to be in Christ. We are irrevocably and organically joined to Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12 to verse 13 says, For as the body is one and as many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. We are put into the body of believers. We are told, He who is joined to the Lord is one Spirit with Him. First Corinthians 6 verse 17 so you see, we belong to Christ, and there is nothing as wonderful as belonging to Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. Can you improve on that, my friend? Being in Christ is the great accomplishment of salvation. Dr. Lewis Sperry Cheffer found that the word in, I-N, occurred 130 times in the rest of the New Testament. Oh, the Lord Jesus said, you in me and I in you. John 15 verse 4. How wonderful. We are in Christ. I can't explain it. It is so profound. Analogies may help us here. The bird is in the air. 
The air is in the bed. The fish is in the water. The water is in the fish. The iron is in the fire. The fire is in the iron. My friend, the believer is in Christ. And Christ is in the believer. We are joined to him. The head is in the body. And the body is in the head. My body can't move without the head directing it. The church, which is the body of Christ, is in Christ, the head. All the truths of Ephesians revolve around this fact in Christ. My friend, take time to look carefully at this epistle. I feel very keenly that along with Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians should actually be given top priority among the Pauline epistles. I feel that these letters have a throbbing, personal living message for each one of us today, probably as no other portion of scripture does. They are the great doctrinal epistles. When God said to Joshua, Arise, go over this Jordan, in Joshua 1 verse 2, I know he is not talking to me, but he is giving instructions to Joshua. Yet to me, it has an application. Now the epistle to the Ephesians is the book of Joshua of the New Testament, and it speaks directly to me in a very personal way. Grace to you. Now, grace was the form of a greeting of the Gentile world in Paul's day. The Greek word was charis. Two men met on the street and one would say to the other, charis, apparently, that was a greeting. And it is still a form of greeting today in Athens and the surrounding countries. Then, it's not just a grace to you and peace. Now, the greeting in the religious world was peace. That is the word you hear today, even in Jerusalem, shalom. Now, Paul takes these two words, which were the common greetings of the day, and gives both of them a wonderful meaning and lifts them to the heights, you see. The grace of God is the means by which God saves us. You must know the grace of God before you can experience the peace of God. And Paul always puts them in that order, grace before peace. You must have grace before you can experience peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. You see the word peace everywhere today. Generally, it refers to peace in some section of the world or world peace. But I want to let you know today, the world can never know peace until it knows the grace of God. And the interesting thing is, you don't see the word grace around very much, isn't it? You see the word love and the word peace. They are very familiar words, and they are supposed to be taken from the Bible, but often they don't mean what they mean in the word of God. Peace is peace with God because our sins are forgiven. Our sins can never be forgiven until we know something of the grace of God. Peace is only the absence of all strife, but the blessing of tranquility. It is the result of reconciliation between God and man based on faith in and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. From our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace and the peace are from God our Father 
In fact, he becomes our father when we experience the grace of God and are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Grace and peace also come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't Paul say they also come from the Holy Spirit? Well, doesn't Paul believe in the Trinity? Oh, yes, he does. But the Holy Spirit was already dwelling in the Ephesian believers. The Lord Jesus was seated at God's right hand in the heavens. Paul used grace and peace, a standard for greeting in all of his letters. He wanted his readers to experience God's grace and peace in their everyday lives. Only God our Father in Christ Jesus our Lord can grant us such wonderful gifts. By mentioning Christ Jesus along with God, Paul was pointing to Jesus as a full person of the Godhead. He recognized his deity and lordship over all creation. Both God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord are co-equal in providing the resources of grace and peace. Have you found grace and peace in him? You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please send a WhatsApp message or SMS to plus two seven seven two six four one four four seven five. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. I'll repeat that number for you. It's country code 27 followed by 72641-4475. From within South Africa, it's 072-641-4475.